Welcome, everyone, to another episode of A Guest at the Past 1892. Today, we will be looking at the week of July 25th. The headlines for many papers across the country still revolve around the homestead strike. Henry Frick, the hated manager of Carnegie Steel Company, survived an attempted assassination at the hands of a Russian-American anarchist named Alexander Berkman. Berkman, who was armed with a revolver and a sharpened steel file, barged into Frick's downtown Pittsburgh office and shot him in his left earlobe as he attempted to get out of his chair. The bullet went through Frick's neck and stopped in his back. Berkman fired once more, this time putting a bullet into Frick's neck. The vice president of Carnegie Steel, John George Alexander Leishman, who happened to be in the room, stopped Berkman from shooting again. Despite what appeared to be terrible mortal wounds, Frick recovered and got back to work within a week. Berkman would be found guilty of attempted murder and sentenced to 22 years in prison. Let's get to some true crime stories of the week, as documented in the July 26th edition of the St. Paul Globe, page 3. Avenged by a mob. An atrocious murder in Tennessee, followed by a lynching. Nashville, Tennessee. J.F. Wynn, who resided near Burns, a small town 37 miles from Nashville, on the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis Railway, last night murdered his wife, fatally wounded his daughter, Miss Anderson, and subsequently attempted to take his own life after he had related to his son the story of his horrible crime. He was arrested this morning and, while being conveyed to jail, was taken from the officers by a mob and hanged. Wynn attacked his wife and stepdaughter while they were asleep between 8 and 9 o'clock. His little son, who was asleep in another room and was not molested, was the only other person in the house at the time. Wynn married Mrs. Anderson, widow of John Anderson, section foreman of the Nashville, Chattanooga, and St. Louis Railway, three years ago, and the family lived on a farm bequeathed to Mrs. Wynn by her first husband. The relations between Wynn and his wife had not been very pleasant for some time. Wynn, it is said, wanted to control some means left his wife by Mr. Anderson, and she objected. At the time mentioned above, Wynne, with an axe, struck his wife two powerful blows on the side of the head, either of which would have proved fatal. One cut extended from the top of her head, through the ear, and to the collarbone, while the other cut immediately in front, reached through the jawbone to her neck. As the blow was delivered with terrific force, 
it is supposed Mrs. Wynne's death was instantaneous. Wynne immediately turned his attention to Miss Anderson, striking her once on the right side of the head, above the ear, and once on the right side and back of the neck, cutting to the bone. Two or three fingers of the left hand were cut off by the sharp blade of the axe in its descent. Believing that he had killed Miss Anderson, as well as his wife, Wynne broke all of the lamps, leaving the house in darkness. He then closed the doors, locked the gate, and going to Colesburg, two miles distant, told what he had done. He then drew a knife and inflicted a severe wound, four inches deep, in his neck. The excitement that followed the confession of Wynne was intense. Neighbors visited the house and found Mrs. Wynne dead and her daughter in a dying condition. It is reported that she has since died. After Wynne had been arrested this morning, the officers having him in charge started to jail with him, but were overpowered and the prisoner taken away from them. He was hurried to a tree nearby and hanged. The remains of Mrs. Wynne were cared for by neighbors and given burial. Miss Anderson was 12 years old and a bright and popular girl. The scenes of the tragedy and the lynching were visited today by hundreds of people. Next story is called A Murderous Convict, Jefferson City, Missouri. Walker Goodall, the night guard in charge of one of the cell buildings at the penitentiary, was in the act of drinking a glass of water about midnight last night when he was attacked from behind by a desperate convict who bore him to the ground. His assailant was Firebug Johnson, as cruel and bloodthirsty a criminal as ever wore the stripes. Although taken at a disadvantage, Goodall fought desperately and shouted loudly for help. Captain Maloney and others soon came to his aid, and after a terrible struggle, Johnson was finally knocked down and secured. He had escaped from the solitary in which he was confined by some cleverly constructed implements with which he had picked the lock of the cell door. It was his intention to murder the guard. He had improvised a rope by tearing up his bed tick and made a slip noose with which to choke Goodall to death. The latter was only slightly hurt in the struggle. Had Johnson secured the guard's revolver, several lives would have been lost before he could have been captured or killed. Johnson is about 35 years old, judging from his appearance. Nothing is known of his early life, nor is there any assurance that his right name is Johnson. But as such, he is known to the criminal history of the state. He informed a reporter once that he was born and raised in Illinois, 
but refused to designate in what part of the state. At the same time, he said his parents were dead. He has told several other stories equally as vague. The first known of him in Missouri was when he worked for a short time in Howard County and was employed by Colonel J.L. Morrison, the present warden of the penitentiary. His career as a noted criminal opened in Shelby County in 1882 when he robbed a storekeeper of a goodly sum of money at the point of a pistol. He was soon afterward arrested and while confined in jail came very nearly killing a deputy sheriff in an attempt to escape. He was sentenced to the penitentiary for 12 years. Some time after Johnson's incarceration in the penitentiary, he scaled one of the prison walls and would probably have escaped had he not broken a leg in falling from the wall to the ground, a distance of probably 20 feet. As soon as Johnson was out of the hospital, he began plotting to escape, and with the assistance of a desperate companion and probably two or three assistants, decided to set fire to the penitentiary and liberate all the convicts who wished to escape. At noon, February 23, 1883, was the day fixed. Johnson overpowered a guard in the Strauss harness and collar factory and taking his clothes quickly, fired the straw and the other combustibles in the building. During the confusion which followed, the fire hose was cut by assistance, and Johnson, having secured a ladder and feeling safe in a citizen's dress, attempted to reach the wall guard who commanded the northern egress of the prison. Here, his plans miscarried. The guard was suspicious and compelled him to retreat at the point of a gun. The fire destroyed $300,000 worth of property, and Johnson received another sentence of 12 years in the penitentiary. After the fire, Johnson was placed in solitary confinement for two years or more, and during this time he tried to brain a guard who was passing him with a bucket of water. With an improvised weapon made from a cleat off a strip of matting in his cell. Failing in all his attempts to kill anyone, Johnson feigned insanity for a time, but soon became disgusted with the maniac Dodge and prepared a statement in which he confessed to having murdered Miss Zoe Watkins, who mysteriously disappeared from St. Louis about the time he was arrested for the Shelby County robbery. His alleged plain statement of facts were so far from the truth that it was evident that he knew nothing about the crime, his sole object being to get a better opportunity to escape than is offered to him at the penitentiary. Warden Marmaduke and Morrison each tried kindness on Johnson to their sorrow. He can only be employed at work where he cannot assault anyone or destroy property. And this is a very difficult matter and requires the constant presence of a guard. He is by long odds the worst and most desperate prisoner ever confined in the penitentiary.
This next article is called Two Brothers Shot, Steubenville, Ohio. A shooting affray, the result of insane jealousy, occurred across the river last evening. Two shanty girls named Mitchell, known as the River Queens, were receiving attentions from two brothers named Ridnour at the house of Oliver Grimes. George Adams objected, and when handed a revolver by Grimes with an injunction to do them up, Adams fired five shots. One shot went through Bob Ridendour's right arm, one through his left arm, one through the left side of William Ridendour, and one grazed the head of William Anderson, colored. The other passed through the pants leg of Brady Lemaster. William Ridendour will probably die. Adams has escaped and is being looked for by officers. The shooting is the culmination of long-standing bad feeling between the two and a feud between the Adams and Ridnour families. This next article is called Slashed with a Knife, Palestine, Texas. In the international and great northern shops this evening, Ed Jones, colored, took umbrage at being ordered to do some work by Henry Holder, the colored boss of the gang, and drawing a knife, cut a gash six inches long across Holder's stomach. Holder ran with his entrails hanging out of the wound, pursued by his infuriated assailant, and would have been finished up completely if Jones had not been knocked down by another colored man. Jones escaped, but surrendered to the sheriff and is now in jail. Holder's wound was sewed up, and he has one chance of ten in pulling through. This story out of Ottumwa, Iowa, called An Angry Lover. Ottumwa people on the Sunday excursion train reaching home last night from Excelsior Springs had a narrow escape from an irate lover. When the train reached Powerside, John McKinley rushed into the car and whipping out a revolver, drew a bead on Miss Lucy Cooley of that place, saying, Are you going to marry me as you promised? Her escort promptly responded, I will take care of this lady, and knocked the revolver to one side. It was in the nick of time, for McKinley had murder in his heart, and the ball passed between Miss Cooley and her escort, through the seat, and penetrated the seat just in the rear, passing between another couple of excursionists. McKinley was overpowered, and turned over to the officers. It seems that Miss Cooley had promised to marry McKinley that day, but had gone picnicking with a rival. Here's another story out of Jeffersonville, Indiana. 
the headline, Bungling Burglars Caught. A brace of well-dressed crooks of late have been infesting the country, and last night they entered the residence of James W. Pond at New Washington, Clark County, abstracting from a bureau drawer $125 in gold and silver coin, two gold watches, and other valuables. In making their exit, they tumbled over a chair, which awoke the occupants. Pond immediately arose from his bed, and as the burglars were in the act of jumping from a window, they were nabbed by Pond and held until assistance from other members of the household arrived. Early this morning, the thieves, in the custody of Pond and his companions, came here, and the pair, who gave their names as John Warren and Charles Wilson, were landed in jail. And finally, this story, accused of poisoning his chum, New York. Edward McAllister, a young man formerly in the employ of the Ward Line Steamship Company, died yesterday morning in the boarding house at 52 Oliver Street. And now his chum, Charles Lane, also a steamboat man, is under arrest accused of having administered poison to the dead man. His father died last winter, leaving a fortune out of which he got $2,000. When he returned to New York after securing his inheritance, he deposited $1,500. With the remaining $500, the young man and his chum, Lane, lived high for a time. About two weeks ago, McAllister was taken sick. During the past week, he was delirious a good deal of the time, and Mrs. Crane, the boarding house keeper, said that he told her that Lane had given him some pills during his last visit. Dr. Hemingway, who saw McAllister just before he died, gave it as his opinion that the young man had died of dropsy superinduced by alcoholism. Mrs. Crane, however, was not satisfied with this verdict, and yesterday at noon she met Lane at the corner of Division Street and the Bowery and grabbed him by the throat and held him until policeman Peterman relieved her. Justice Diver, at the request of the police, remanded Lane until a further investigation of the case can be made. Let's do one more story, just for the road. It's out of Cincinnati, Ohio. The headline, The Work of Fiends. A terrible outrage was perpetrated at Parlor Grove last night. Josie Berger, a pretty Covington girl, was the victim. Together with her escort, she attended the Pandemonium Club picnic. While taking a stroll through the woods, the couple were overtaken by two young men from Covington who were well known to both Miss Berger and her escort. One of the men was Robert Brown, Deputy Sheriff of Covington. 
and the champion lightweight pugilist of Kentucky. He had a revolver in his hand, and pointing it at Ferguson, the young man who accompanied Miss Berger, said, You are both under arrest. You don't mean that, said Ferguson. I'll show you mighty quick if I don't, replied Brown. His companion grappled with Ferguson, while Brown choked Miss Berger into insensibility and outraged her. Ferguson broke loose and ran for help, which soon arrived, but the villains had escaped. Intense excitement prevailed, and search was made for the perpetrators of the outrage, but without result. The whole affair occurred within a few yards of 1,000 people. All the parties are well-known and well-connected in Covington. And that ends this episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. I'll be back again soon. Until next time.